Welcome to This Week in Sustainability Twist. My name is Felicia Etzkorn. I'm from Virginia Tech. I'm Jamie Ferguson. Jamie Ferguson is from Emory and Henry College. So, so tonight we're going to talk about cycling carbon and ways to keep carbon out of the atmosphere. So we begin from the perspective that carbon in the atmosphere causes climate change, and it's a problem. The earth is warming. It's not warming uniformly around the globe, and that leads some people to think that it's not that important. We're not going to argue that point. We're going to start from the point of view that it's a problem. Man-made generated carbon from fossil fuels and not just fossil fuels, but fossil feedstocks for polymers is a problem. So carbon dioxide is the main culprit and carbon dioxide is the major feedstock for plants to grow. They take in carbon dioxide and it reacts with water. Also, well, water usually from the ground, um, but some plants take it in from the atmosphere to make glucose, primarily glucose. And then glucose polymerizes into cellulose in plants and other metabolites that the plants need for life. But basically it's making larger molecules out of carbon dioxide. And then once you have carbon locked up in plants in the form of cellulose, then cows um, eat it, people eat plants, and all sorts of animals ultimately subsist on the carbon that the plants generate and use it as an energy source and in the process break it down back down into carbon dioxide and water so that's what we exhale um, as a waste product so that's the carbon cycle now what happened hundreds of thousands maybe even millions of years ago i'm i'm not a geologist but the plants evolved on land apparently before there were very many microbes to break them down. And so they, the plants essentially got buried and they got compressed and the water got, I don't know, squeezed out of them. They became reduced. The oxygen got squeezed out and they became hydrocarbons that that that's what petroleum is and so that was locking up a lot of the carbon dioxide from early atmosphere and another way that carbon dioxide is locked up is in the form of limestone calcium carbonate is a major sink for carbon dioxide um, and that's a hard hard one to think about how that cycles, but that's gonna come up later when we talk about acid rain. 
So my question, and, and some other environmentalists have, have thought about this, is does it make sense to just bury carbon or to biodegrade it? So if we're thinking about plastics in particular, and we use currently almost entirely, we use petroleum to manufacture plastics. And then those plastics persist in the environment, create all sorts of problems because we don't do a very good job of burying them. But if we did, that would be like putting the carbon back in the ground where it came from. So what do you think, Jamie? You said that would be like doing what? My, my signal went out. Oh, burying carbon back in the ground in the form of plastics instead of trying to create biodegradable plastics. So this is to bury or to compost, essentially, is the question. Mm -hmm. Should we bury it or should we compost it? Because if you compost it, then it's micro breaking it down. What I'm thinking of is the whatever surfactants they use for uh, fracking, you know, being an issue in the water table. So that's going down to geological depths. I mean, my understanding of of fracking is, I think of it as sending a bunch of Dawn dishwashing detergent. They don't tell you what it is, proprietary, but surfactant kind of stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff. Down you know, into the depths, you know, the deepest that we've been able to dig to pull oil up. And then they're basically like cleaning the dishes, you know, of the, of the oil that is still hanging out in all of those crevices. Well, they're sort of forcing it out. They're, they're forcing it out with right pressure. Detergents. Yeah. And detergents. Yeah. But I think the detergents are necessary because because it's nonpolar, I guess, you know, I, I think maybe that's why they make it detergents, but the point being they're sending chemicals down, synthetic chemicals down into where I think that you're talking about storing waste plastic and it still gets into the ecosystem via the water table. It's, right. you know, that is the issue with fracking. And so if you're sending waste plastic down and what does it biodegrade into or not bio, what does it geologically degrade what kind of leaching you know you could still potentially have leaching i think from even way down you know i, I don't know yeah it depends on how you would yeah i mean you'd landfills are pretty surface they're they're not great they're not a great way to store waste but I don't, I don't know where most of the plastic in the oceans comes from. Is it? it so I think it comes from the litter. Yeah, it, it comes from the fact that all of our plastic, we're used to sending all of our plastic to Asia. China used to take it, you know, 90% or whatever, go to China. And then in 2017, 2018, their Operation National Sword policy of not taking you know, not taking the plastic waste of the world. And so it has gone to uh, any, it like it gets processed somewhere else. Or not, not anymore. 
what they what they what they don't process gets dumped into you know i think gets gets dumped in oceans where the where most of the plastic waste is processed um at least what's recycled is recycled uh in operations in asia used to be mainly china and now that china has stopped taking it since 2017 or 18 um now it is primarily places like I think Vietnam and Thailand. They, you know, have more than they can handle, and so you know. But I, I think that's where it gets processed, and it's also not very well regulated. You know, there's not a lot of accountability. So, well, and I, I think so. So part of the problem is is the collection of plastic, you know, through grocery stores and whatever, Amazon and hardware stores and whatever, there's all this plastic packaging and um, it's mostly packaging, right? If you think about it in, in those terms. Um, yeah, packaging is a huge part of plastic waste, yeah. Yeah, and so, that plastic gets distributed out into every household on the planet. And then you're trying to collect it back up through these recycling, you know, community recycling. Um, but, you know, most, most people aren't that careful about it. But even once you do collect it up, each community then has to find a market for it. And there, there is not a market for it anymore. They can hardly pay for um, the trucks and the manpower to pick it up. So that's a problem. <laughs> well, the, well, I mean, the problem is that it's so low value uh, what is produced right now because it is because there's just a lack of the price of oil is too low. Well, I think that also there's a lack. Uh, so the reason that its value is so low is because it's not sorted well because it's not yeah because people don't they don't sort their waste we just don't have a culture of sorting our waste you know if that could be browbeaten into us so that we I don't know you know did wash and separate our plastics i think that's a big reason that china ended up taking so much of the of the waste is because anything that labor is a big component to it you know is going to get farmed out to some country that has a lot cheaper labor costs you know our our, our bales are really low value because because we don't sort them well yeah how much of petroleum i'm i'm looking this up how much of petroleum is used to make plastic i once read that it was three percent of Fossil fuel. If we if we think of it as natural gas plus petroleum, fossil fuels, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's not all that much. And of the petroleum, this problem of the carbon from petroleum going into plastics, and then you know microbial degradation um, can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what the products are of the microbial degradation. So, so microbes, like for example, in, in cows, right? They 
um, the microbes in their gut creates methane and methane's 25 times worse than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. So um, microbial degradation can be bad if you produce CO2 and methane, but it can also make larger organics. And so there was this case of the Japanese group that found an, uh, a microbe in soil, soil that was contaminated with polyethylene terephthalate, the PET plastic, which is number one um, recycling. And that microbe would actually just break it down into the monomer pieces that could then potentially be reused to synthesize PET again. But this distribution and collection problem, I, I don't know. I mean, think about the energy that goes into having these trucks drive around every community to pick it up and then, you know, washing it, cleaning it and remanufacturing it. We talked about this before, it's mostly downcycling or the energy to, you know, ship it over to Vietnam or China. Um, that's a lot of energy that goes into recycling. And so, well, the, the life cycle analysis is problematic. Yeah, I, I think that it's kind of amazing to think about how the shipping cost, how low shipping costs affect, you know, other things. Like if your goal is to, is to have as many shipments as possible because the people who make the money, it sounds like are the people who move the material because there's a demand for it uh, in, you know, in China, they make a lot of things out of recycled plastic, but mm -hmm. And so they were, people were making money on the movement of it. But I mean, you're not going to make that money if it is, if, if the real price of oil is reflected in all of those giant tankers, you know, that's, that's one thing I think about a lot is just, yeah, the, the, the artificially depressed price of energy to move stuff, you know, you just, right. you don't need to be moving stuff across oceans for that kind of processing. Like we all should be processing our own waste to some extent, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe it does make sense to make biodegradable plastics instead. And, and the other good thing about biodegradable plastics is that they're usually made from biofeedstocks. And so that's where you're you're in in the active carbon cycle you're pulling you know you're essentially most biofeedstocks are plants um and you're so you're essentially pulling co2 out of the atmosphere through the plants putting it into plastics and if you then take those plastics and bury them whether they get degraded or not by microbes, that could be a good thing, right? Uh, we, I think we wanna bury as much carbon as we can, 
no matter what the source. But the other good thing about that is each community can have its own compost process where all the biodegradable plastics just go in there. And if they're truly biodegradable, not just compostable. So, so do you know about the difference between biodegradable and compostable? Biodegradable, I still send to the landfill and compostable, I don't mind throwing out at the edge of my yard. Well, I think it's actually the opposite because if you look at the NatureWorks website and they have the PLA that's compostable, it says on their packaging, and PLA stands for polylactic acid. So PLA, I put it in my compost bin and it does take forever to break down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it turns out that what they really mean by that is actively shredding it up and having really good composting where you you're watering it and you're rotating it and you've got these and it gets hot and the microbes are fat and happy. Right. And I don't compost that way. I'm not a very good composter. I just sort of dump it all into the bin and every now once a year, I sort of spread it out on my ground. And so things like avocado husks and orange peels, don't break down very fast and neither does PLA. So I think biodegradable, if it's truly biodegradable, then you ought to be able to just throw it out in your yard and it would really break down. You wouldn't have to compost it. That's my understanding. But I think that we have a standing need in society to have polymers that microbes can't break down we need barriers you know like that's a that's a fundamental i i think like advance for humans that that uh that we have you know cling film and things that are barriers so that we can have food preserved i want to put in a plug kate o'neill's waste from i think 2019 um, was a great book that talked about about food waste and how if you know if if food spoilage was a country it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitting country on earth you know that's how much food gets spoiled and so I mean it does prevent that yeah you know? but what about glass I mean I just use glass jars all the time and you know, reuse them over and over and over again. And I don't. Would you bring your glass jar to the butcher to collect meat? Well, I don't go to the butcher. (laughs) I don't go to the butcher. Um, So that's like a whole nother issue. We don't need to get into that. Yeah. I just finished um, reading My Year of Meats by Ruth Ozeki. It's a novel but it's great. It's, it's a great book. <laughs> so is that kind of like a vegetarian going meaty for a year? Like the, like the way no, that meat eaters go vegetarian for a year? 
Not really, but it's sort of like that. She's a documentary filmmaker and she gets a job working for this, you know, fictional beefex company that sends beef to Japan and they the the documentary or the the TV it's a TV show called uh, My American Wife <laughs> and each week oh, the wife cooks a different kind of meat so it's all about meat but she she's kind of subversive and so you can sort of imagine where that goes and she ends up in a feedlot and and then a slaughterhouse <laughs> and it, anyway so preserving, you know, I wish that the butcher so would I, give you meat in your own container that you could, you know, maybe it would be a more durable plastic that you could use over and over again or something like that. Yeah. Instead of these temporary, temporary packaging. But I feel the same way about vegetables. You know, I have to, you know... I don't know. I guess I can throw broccoli in my canvas sack, but I usually don't. And right, so and I then, think that you have to draw a line as to you know what you expect society's behavior change right to be. You know what what kind of like how much can we expect society to to change their behavior. And, and if we can't expect them to change their behavior about that, then we still have that need. Right. But couldn't that be biodegradable? Mm, if it's biodegradable, then that means microbes can break it down. And that means that it is, that it's not as good at doing what it's doing, which is being a barrier between things, other things that want to eat your food. Well, but, but, you know, what if it's biodegradable on a two year time scale and these things are used for only as long as the meat will be fresh yeah yep yep i'd I'd agree i mean you don't want a a water bottle or a coke bottle to to be hydrolyzed in less than a five or ten year period but steve miller at at florida um talks about the ideal lifetime you know, half-life for water-degradable plastics. So you you want it to degrade once it gets to the ocean or a lake or whatever. You don't want it to degrade when it's holding, you know, your juice or your milk or whatever. Yeah. So so there's a balance there. But I think think that's, chemists are smart enough to, to negotiate that balance. We do have a lot of uses already in place for them and I think the chemistry is getting better so that you can so Eastman was was telling us about their carbon renewal technology that they can take any they can take any plastic except PVC as a feedstock and uh except converted into PVC, gas. PVC except for PVC yeah chlorinated stuff yeah so that's yeah. polyvinyl chloride they can create a lot of the same plastics, you know, using the syngas made from basically you're breaking plastic down into its small gas molecule components. So hydrogen gas, carbon monoxide, that's syngas. So is that done catalytically with a... I guess so. 
Is it an enzyme so. catalyst or is it a heavy metal catalyst? Well, that's what you and I were speculating about. And I don't know, but I would imagine that it would be a heavy metal because I imagine that it's a high temperature process. I, I think it's probably a pyro. I mean, that's what pyrolysis is, right? Is just thermally yeah. degrading things with not in the presence of oxygen. Yeah. And so I, I imagine it's something like that and if it's something like that those things are usually you know sort of at high temperature i i doubt it's an enzyme related process right that's just gonna be that would make sense um but catalysts are good we've we've mentioned them before but i think we should define a catalyst again a catalyst is so any any uh, reaction to have the reaction take place, you got to go get over an energy barrier. Um, and so a catalyst is something that lowers that energy barrier by making uh, the process of that reaction a less stressful process. There's something, you know, there's, it makes that, that reaction pathway um, more stable. So yeah, that's a catalyst. Right. So you lower the energy barrier by arranging the molecules the way you want them around the catalyst center. Um, and that can either make bonds or break bonds, depending on the reaction you're trying to get to go. But basically, it's like guiding. It's a guide wire. It takes it down the right pathway and lowers the energy of that pathway. So it's sort of, sort of like a tunnel through a mountain. Instead of going over that energy barrier, you're going, th you're going at a, a, the lowest energy pathway you can find, or like going over the pass between two mountains rather than going over the top of the mountain, finding the lowest pass that you can, right? Yeah. Or I yeah. think of it like if I, I always when I'm trying to explain to students and because it's it's hard for them to get in their mind that it takes an input of energy. You need to dump energy into the system to break a bond and it's a negative change of energy that you get energy out of it that the system gives off energy when a bond is formed. And so I try to say it's like Red Rover, Red Rover, you know, you have to run into their arms in order to break that handshake. And if you twist, if, if one of the partners twisted your arms and now your, your, your handshake were strained, it's going to take less energy to break that connection. And so I think of enzymes as, as doing that, you know, as. Or any catalyst. So, so we're kind of using yeah. enzymes interchangeably. Um, enzymes are biological catalysts that are made of proteins. And so we have heavy metal catalysts. Um, there, are, there are also just small molecule organic catalysts. And then there are the large biomolecule protein catalysts. We're actually using a, an RNA catalyst in my research right now. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. Something different. What's it called? Um, Flexizyme. It's a ribozyme. So we're still waffling on this issue of, you know, 
what to do with petroleum-based plastics. Like biodegradable ones are good. I think I think they're a good idea because you can you don't have to worry about the recycling transportation issues involved and processing. Once you make it, you throw it out and it just gets broken down or buried or both broken down and buried. That would be doubly good. Um, but the petroleum-based plastics are really problematic. The most packaging is just such a temporary use, right? I think that we need we we need to have the public will power to you know have serious sorting and and kind of raise that in public consciousness to to separate well to wash and to separate well just for a few more classes would be great. I don't know. I just I don't see the need to use something that's so permanent for such a temporary purpose. I think you should create something that's matched in time that lasts long enough. I mean, it's different if you're making like plastic composites with carbon fiber for cars to make them lighter. You want those to last, right? Plastics that last, that are durable plastics, that's different. And in fact, I wish they'd used metal on some of the parts of my house. Like my window screens have little plastic knobs that are all degraded. So it's a kind of a stupid way to make, you know, a house out of plastic that falls apart, doesn't work anymore. Well, I think we're going to, I think we have a lot of plastic to do something with at this point, I think. Well, yeah, we need to address that, but I'm I'm thinking of the direction in the future. You know, what 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 should our goal be? And I think our goal should be to quit using you know, fossil feedstocks for plastics for for packaging, I should say, for for packaging. Well, I I think if you yeah, I I mean, your feedstocks are small molecules at the end of the day. And if you can get to those same small molecules from a renewable resource versus a non-renewable resource, you're good, you know? Right, right. But then the other thing, the other, the flip side of that coin is that I was feeling really, really bad about any time I threw away a plastic bag. You can't recycle vegetable bags, you know, produce bags at least in my town. Now that I think about it as burying the carbon, as long as they're disposed of properly, make it into the landfill, until the time that they're biodegradable, I'm not feeling as bad as I was before because at least it's going back into the ground instead of like the gasoline for my car. I drive a hybrid, um, so I don't use you know, I use about half as much of gasoline, but still, it's a lot. Um, and that goes from the ground into the atmosphere 
And that's a really bad thing, right? Because it starts, and, and we're going to talk about that another time, biofuels. Petroleum-based or, or fossil-based plastics came out of the ground, put it back into the ground. I don't feel so bad. Maybe recycling isn't, isn't as necessary as I was thinking before. And especially if you take into account all the transportation and fossil fuels that get burned for that transportation, right? Yeah. I mean, what I think of is, uh, what I know is that the Walmart bag that I take my recycling to the recycling center in, if I leave it in that Walmart bag, it will make me feel better because I sent it to a recycling center, but it will make things worse because it might interrupt their, you know, IR spectrometer sorting of plastic types and it's gonna right it's not recyclable it's not gonna get recycled and it might end up in the ocean and so yeah yeah makes me feel better but it but it shouldn't make me feel better and so I I have learned I think too yeah so so I guess what I'm saying is throw it in the trash (laughs) the bag you know um and then what do I do with all my yogurt containers that are polypropylene, which is the number five? I think eventually you're going to send them to Eastman or somewhere like Eastman. Yay! That has a, that has a really good, you know, uh, that has the technology down. You know, they're not going to tell you what the catalyst is, but they, it is up and running. It's been running since the end of 2019, this carbon renewal technology. They take waste plastic, uh, they, they reform it into syngas, they combine it with acetic anhydride and uh, stuff that they get from trees. And that's how they get their cellulosic, you know, fibers and stuff. And if they can take my plastic in a few, in a few years, I have a, um, a student who's working for them on that, in that area of the plant. And who's your student? Uh, it's it's his name's Rafe Hagee, and uh, he's well, good for graduated him. in the spring, and yeah, so that kind of that gives me hope, and yeah, there are there are goals, you know, by kind of shared goals uh, held by different companies, like this global commitment that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation is kind of spearheading, and that's. I, let's see, what was it for the Ellen MacArthur? Um, they are aiming for 100% of plastics to be reusable, recyclable, or compostable. And okay. people who've signed on to it are people like uh, Nestle, Unilever, Coca-Cola, Tupperware, things like that. And they have a goal of 25% recycled content in their plastics by 2025. Um you know, True. so if everybody can, I think that's what, that that's, that's what's needed, you know, is for everybody to kind of. I wish it was a hundred percent. Well, incremental better is better. I don't know. Better is better. Better is better. So, so you were asking about the about plastics in fossil fuel. Um, 
another little tidbit from the notes I took on that Kate O'Neill book, um, the International Energy Agency predicts plastics will increase in their share of global oil demand. I have that quote wrong. It might be by 2025. I have the year wrong, but the prediction is that the plastics as, you know, demand for oil is going to increase in, in the share of all fossil fuel. And I think that's probably due to the increase in renewable energy. I hope so. Because again, if it's locked up, if it's tied up in the plastic, it's not getting burned and put into the atmosphere. So on that hopeful note, I want to switch gears and talk about something I heard on another podcast. Um, started about the same time as this one, and it was called it's called Brave New Planet. Um, I think Eric Lander is the host of that from the Broad Institute, and the, he was talking to some people about geoengineering to try to prevent global warming. And they specifically talked about taking sulfur dioxide and putting it out in, you know, particles of sulfur dioxide out into the atmosphere and how politically that was a really bad idea because of all the people who would say, well, then that's great. Then we don't have to stop creating carbon um, pollution and... But then what happens when we stop, you know, sprinkling SO2 into the atmosphere? So I, I agree that's, that's a terrible idea, um, but not just from the political perspective and sort of the, the psychosocial effects of, you know, giving us an alternative to actually dealing with climate change and carbon pollution. The, the problem that they did not discuss at, is a chemical problem because sulfur dioxide will react with water in the atmosphere to create, you know, H2SO3 and H2SO4 um, with, and also it reacts with oxygen to create H2SO4. And that that's acid rain. It's not a big deal for human health, but it kills plants. I don't know, you, you're too young to remember, but there was a time when you could actually see the damage to the leaves on the trees and the plants from the coal burning power plants putting out SO2. And so it's a terrible idea. I mean, from, from every perspective, you, you don't want to be putting SO2 in there. It's not inert. Yeah, it's going to re re reflect sunlight back into space. You know, this is what volcanoes do when they cool the planet. They spew out a bunch of SO2 and the planet cools by a degree for about a year, um, maybe one growing season. And... You know, they've, they've seen this actually in 1991. There, I think it was Mount Kinutobu. They saw a cooling event, but it didn't last very long. And they have to keep putting this SO2 out there because 
it comes down with the rain and as you know sulfuric acid so it's a it's a, just a, a terrible idea we <laughs> the bottom line is we do have to deal with you don't think we could just you know put some uh put some baking soda in our sprinkler system and even it all out <laughs> is that kind of like raking the forest leaves off the floor <laughs> <laughs> to prevent forest fires to say okay <laughs> yeah crop dusters with baking soda yeah, yeah. oh yeah but then isn't that going to upset the equilibrium and take the SO2 out of the atmosphere even faster and cause it to rain more acid rain? Don't you have to, don't you have some sort of uh, Le Chatelier's principle? <laughs> we'll just, we'll just put it really high up there. Really high. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Well, baking soda is essentially CO2 and water, and it would just break up into CO2 again. CO2 is really hard to get out of the atmosphere. That's why plants are so wonderful. We need to take care of our plants and feed them and nurture them and not destroy our forests and cut them down. We need to find other ways of building buildings and we could have much healthier soil. We could have a lot higher carbon content in the dirt underneath our feet. Anthony Flacavento, we'll, we'll get him on here. Okay, so tonight we've talked about plastics, whether to bury, recycle, or compost them, and particularly the relationship between fossil fuel feedstock plastics and carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, we did talk about Eastman Chemical Company and their sort of chemical recycling, which could take all different forms of plastics and break them down basically into their component uh, small molecules, reuse those in manufacturing new plastics. And Finally, we talked about the idea of geoengineering with sulfur dioxide and what a horrible idea that is in terms of it producing acid rain. We also came to the conclusion that um, burying is not such a bad idea because if you're taking it out of the ground and you're putting the carbon back into the ground, at least it's not going into the atmosphere. So this has been another edition of This Week in Sustainability. My name is Felicia Etzkorn. I record and edit and post these podcasts. And Jamie Ferguson is my co-host. Oh, I've got to read a haiku from Elemental Haikus by Mary Soon Lee. All right, carbon. Show-stealing diva, throw yourself at anyone, decked out in diamonds. <laughs> Most people don't know diamonds are made of carbon. Carbon will bond with an abundance of other elements and, like hydrogen, is necessary to all known forms of life. 
Among the millions of carbon compounds are sugars, proteins, and DNA. Diamond is a crystalline allotrope of carbon. Allotropes of an element being the different physical forms it can take. Graphite is another allotrope. Thank you, Mary Soon Lee. Thank, thank you, you, Jamie Ferguson. I'd like to thank Wendy Godley for creating the music and performing it. And I encourage you all to subscribe to our podcast and listen and tell your friends about it. Jamie? We're signing off here and reminding you to think about it. Don't think too hard, but think about it. Excellent. Good night. Good night.